Life After Bresco miniseries part one. The decision in John Doyle Construction Limited in liquidation and Erith Contractors Limited. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, this is the first podcast in a series dealing with the practical implications of the Supreme Court decision in Michael J. Lonsdale Electrical Limited versus Bresco Electrical Services Limited in liquidation, that's 2020 UK SC25, for those seeking to enforce or resist enforcement of adjudication claims brought by insolvent companies post-Bresco, and we'll be talking about Bresco. I am John Dennis Smith. I am joined by Marion Smith, Rebecca Drake, and David Sawtell. We are all members of the commercial and construction team at 39 Essex Chambers, experienced in adjudication and adjudication enforcement proceedings. In this episode, we discuss the principles now established by the TCC, the Technology and Construction Court, in John Doyle Construction Limited in liquidation versus RF Contractors Limited. So, Rebecca, we know that the Supreme Court decision in Michael J. Lonsdale versus Bresco, the one that we now refer to as Bresco, was handed down on the 17th of June 2020. What were its findings? The Supreme Court took a different approach to the TCC and the Court of Appeal and decided that adjudicators did have jurisdiction to determine construction disputes brought by insolvent companies and that allowing such adjudications was not an exercise in futility. Some of us on this session considered the immediate implications of the decision in a webinar now available on the Chamber's website. We, like many others, speculated as to the likely impact of the decision, given the clear steer from the Supreme Court that the enforcement stage was where the impact of the insolvency was to be considered. What happened in John Doyle? The decision in John Doyle was the first significant decision after Bresco refusing enforcement of an adjudicator's decision where the claimant was an insolvent liquidation in John Doyle Construction Limited, in liquidation, and Erith Contractors Limited 2020 EWHC 2451. But before we look at the decision itself, Let's review the problem question scenario we're going to use in these podcasts. First of all, Sparky Limited, or Sparky, is going to be a specialist electrical, mechanical and electrical subcontractor. They have been engaged by Employer Co Limited uh, to construct three retail parks in England under similar contracts, all providing for adjudication under the scheme for construction contracts. So Retail Park 1 was completed in 2014, and a final account was agreed, and a moiety of a retention was paid. Retail Park 2 was completed in 2015, but when the final account was agreed, Employer Co. has held on to the moiety of a retention. It's citing unspecified defects with Sparky's work, but they don't appear to amount to more than minor problems. Retail Park 3 was completed in 2016, and there were problems during the project. An employer co purported to even terminate the subcontract, and the parties cannot agree a final account. In 2017, Sparky entered insolvent liquidation, 
and the liquidators believed the claims against Employco in respect of retail parks 2 and 3 were risky and did not want to pursue them themselves. Instead, they assigned these claims to Calculus Limited, or referred to as Calculus, on terms that Calculus will retain 40% of any sums recovered from Employco after costs. And so Sparky, supported by Calculus, commenced an adjudication in respect of Retail Park 3. It obtained a declaration that it's entitled to an order for payment of £350,000 in January 2018, and the adjudicator did not make an immediate order for payment. Let's look at more recent developments. In 2019, the retail park owner approached Employerco about concerns in respect to the electrical supply to Retail Park 1, which Employerco is still investigating and still hasn't found the cause of these problems. Sparky has issued proceedings to enforce the decision of the adjudicator uh, to obtain a judgment for £350,000. It seeks the usual expedited TCC directions to enforce the adjudicator's decision by way of summary judgment. In its evidence, calculus has offered conditions which we'll go on to consider in the third episode. But to briefly mention them, firstly, it's agreeing to pay the adjudicated sum into a separate bank account, which they say will be ring-fenced specifically for the purpose of holding it until a final resolution of dispute. And it also relies on a policy of ATE, or after the event insurance, provided by InsurerCo, that will pay out if EmployerCo wins at trial. The ATE policy is capped at a million pounds, and InsurerCo have a yen in respect of their premium, and any costs paid out over any recovery from EmployerCo. So, Rebecca, we have a situation where Sparky is seeking the usual expedited directions that we used to in the TCC guide. Is there any scope after John Doyle for arguing that it should not or would not get them? Well, this was the subject of the final two paragraphs of Mr Justice Fraser's judgment, so paragraphs 146 and 147. He referred first of all to the fact that the TCC has developed a streamlined and rapid procedure in adjudication business for abridging time for acknowledgement of service serving evidence and the other steps necessary. Usually the time limits for these steps are very tight, with a hearing brought on before a judge usually within four to six weeks. This matches the ethos and intention of adjudication, which was created specifically to give parties to construction contracts quick answers to disputes, and often actually during the construction projects themselves. However, he said he didn't consider that procedure to be required or even suitable for summary judgment applications such as this one. Now, these works were performed between 2010 and 2012, and that was the date of the origin of the dispute. The liquidation occurred in 2013, and the adjudication wasn't commenced until five years later in 2018. It's now 2020. Now, when enforcement proceedings relating to historic claims are brought by companies in liquidation, the defendant may need time to organise its evidence. So, for example, relevant employees may have left, they may be harder to get hold of, they might be abroad. Other contracts in relation to mutual dealings may have been closed, and the exercise is likely to be much more involved and require more time for investigation than a much more conventional and contemporaneous adjudication enforcement claim. So for cases such as this one, where proceedings are brought by a company in liquidation concerning a historic dispute so many years in the past, 
the normal timescales in the civil procedure rules for acknowledgement of service and so on are much more likely to be appropriate and there's less justification for expedition. Now, this would lead to hearings taking place within a number of months rather than the usual few weeks that you'll get in an expedited procedure. But this has two advantages. First, it enables the defendant to meet the claim for summary judgment fairly in terms of being able to collate the relevant evidence. And secondly, it preserves the fast track process for those solvent parties who are in urgent need of a decision from the court on a more contemporaneous or pressing dispute. Whilst Mr Justice Fraser said that changes to the TCC guide would need to be considered following the decision in Bresco, parties in a similar position to that of John Doyle should not expect their claims for summary judgment to be routinely expedited in the same way as more conventional adjudication business. Now, obviously, the facts are different here. The timescales are much shorter for a start and there's less time that has elapsed. But it could certainly give employer care grounds for an argument that the expedited procedure should not be used. So pending a new TCC guide that will tell us all the answers, um, in terms of a substantive decision that the court has to reach, there are two routes uh, which effectively lead to the same end. First, the court can refuse summary judgment, um, or second, it may grant summary judgment but order a stay of execution. Uh, let's first take refusing summary judgment, as that logically is the prior stage. What are the principles to be applied by the court when considering an application for summary judgment? Mr Justice Fraser set these out at paragraph 54 of the decision in Erith. There are five principles, or possibly three, depending on how you look at it, to be applied by the court when considering an application for summary judgment on an adjudication decision in favour of a company in liquidation. So I'll go through those. First of all, the first principle is whether the dispute in respect of which the adjudicator has issued a decision is one in respect of the whole of the party's financial dealings under the construction contract in question, or simply one element of it. Principles two and three can be considered together, and this is how we some people will look at it as three principles rather than five. So principle number two is whether there are mutual dealings between the parties that are outside the construction contract under which the adjudicator has resolved the particular dispute. Principle number three, which is very much related, is whether there are other defences available to the defendant that were not deployed in the adjudication. And that might relate to the other mutual dealings, for example. Principles four and five can also be considered together. Principle number four, is whether the liquidator is prepared to offer appropriate undertakings, such as, for example, ring fencing the enforcement proceeds, and whether there is other security available. Principle number five is whether there is a real risk that the summary enforcement of an adjudication decision will deprive the paying party of security for its cross-claim. We will go on to consider the application of those principles to summary judgment, before we come back in a later podcast to the other route of preventing the insolvent company being awarded its money, which is the question of whether or not a stay should be awarded. Thanks for that, Rebecca. What do we think? David, John, do you were you surprised by Fraser's enunciation of the principles? 
I wasn't surprised. Uh, although the uh, Supreme Court looked to have pushed back against the TCC and the Court of Appeal uh, in the decision in Bresco, it was actually answering a very different question. It was asking, is adjudication available in principle? Uh, to a company insolvent liquidation. And this was the first opportunity for the TCC to actually look at what tests would be applied uh, when a decision came up for enforcement. And so we're starting to look at something. It looks like rarely, uh, but not never, as being the answer to that question. Do you agree with that, John? Yes, I think that when it comes to insolvent liquidation, one has to remember that there is a key judgment by the Court of Appeal years ago, uh, the case of Buig and Dahl Jensen, in which they first stated that where you have a situation in which uh, there's an insolvency scenario, uh, you must make sure that the insolvency rules um, prevail. Um, however, all that the Supreme Court did in Bresco was say that that doesn't prevent you having an adjudication and going to court uh, for the court to decide whether to enforce or not. Where I think it's uh, interesting is the introduction of the reference to how long has passed since the underlying dispute arose. Because uh, in the past, uh, there hasn't really been any determination of what relevance that has, except where the Court of Appeal said that provided there isn't a limitation defence, this is the case of uh, MJ Mechanical and Connex, you can bring adjudication proce- uh, proceedings and enforce them. Um, and what's interesting here is the idea that if, if more time has passed since that adjudication, the court isn't going to fast-track enforcement proceedings in the way it might do if the adjudication had happened during the course of the project or shortly afterwards. Do you think that reflects a concern that the floodgates are going to be opened? People were holding back on enforcement pending the Supreme Court and perhaps also a recognition that COVID-19 is, whatever anyone says or thinks, disrupting the timetable of the TCC? I think actually it reflects what happened in the proceedings leading up to the Erif decision, uh, where the parties were putting in a number of witness statements about the status of uh, the funding company who'd actually uh, assumed the claim. And because of that, I think Mr Justice Fraser uh, was a bit concerned that parties wouldn't get an opportunity to fully explore conditions, to fully explore uh, what was going on uh, with the funding arrangements. Because my experience over lockdown when seeking enforcement is the TCC has been remarkably rapid. And actually it's got quicker. Uh, I think the courts are quite keen to flex their muscles uh, over the virtual uh, uh, programs and uh, platforms that they've been using. Uh, That's been my experience as a TCC user uh, over lockdown. Well, we'll develop that, I think, as we continue to talk about it. But just to wrap up where we are now, we are awaiting possibly a new practice guidance from the TCC about the timetabling of enforcement applications. And we've got three big headings to consider. Is it, it, does the adjudication decision decide the whole of the party's financial dealings? Are there other claims, cross claims and defences which need to be taken account of? And what undertakings are being offered? Not forgetting underneath it all, who is funding this? Thanks for listening. 
At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. <laughs>